I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's sponsored insight are Chad Sumi and Mike Veith, partners at eGateway Capital, a Cincinnati-based thesis-driven firm that focuses on growth stage enablement technologies that drive the future of digital supply chains, marketing, and commerce. Our conversation covers their path to creating eGateway, their investment strategy, and process. Chad and Mike highlight the firm's regional and relationship-based sourcing and value-add opportunities that benefit from the importance of the Midwest in supply chains and commerce. Before we get going, my son Ryan wants to share his take on spreading the word. When I'm warming up for a wrestling match, I jump some rope and get focused by listening to anything but the Capital Allocators podcast. It's not that my dad can't help you compound capital, but let's just say it doesn't help me get pumped up for matches. But for any other use case, I'd highly recommend the show. Thanks so much for spreading the word about Capital Allocators. Please enjoy. My conversation with Chad Sumi and Mike Veith. Chad, Mike, thanks so much for joining me. Ted, thanks for having us. Well, why don't we start with your respective backgrounds? And Chad, I know there's a path before investing for you. Why don't we dive right into that? Yeah, I definitely have taken a non-traditional route. I started my career after the Naval Academy in submarines in the back of an engine room. I had a wonderful time and experience in the service climbed out of hatch and found myself at Procter & Gamble. I was really a formative state to understand the consumer at such a great company and the maker of big brands and spent most of my time in baby care, their biggest division around the globe, marketing baby diapers. Funny enough, I have a family of four, so it was very apropos. Ended up on a smaller brand that we were taking digital and really became enamored with the tech space and digital solutions that were helping brands grow and jumped into one of our partners, coupons.com, and had a wonderful eight-year experience helping that company grow from a variety of different positions, running sales, ultimately becoming their chief operating officer, chief strategy officer, and serving both CPG space and retail. Started out digitizing promotions and went into digital media and being pioneers of what today is one of the fastest spaces in all digital media, which is retail media. So we launched some of the first media platforms for big retailers like Albertson Safeway and Dollar General and others. And it was just a really fun space to be pioneering and setting the course forward, which then brought me to eGateway in 2020. Mike and I and some other partners came together with a shared vision to really build a firm and not just a fund. That was my non-traditional route to investing. So Chad, before we turn this over to Mike, I got to have you bring me through some of these three big steps along the way. Five years in a submarine, what do you learn most from that experience that's carried you through today? 
Oh my gosh. I always say close the hatch for six months and you can get a lot done. I've tried to bring that experience into my civilian life. I was a young person and the most formidable experience of any person that's ever served is a higher order call and mission, which I really respect to this day. And it was such a gift to serve our nation. The submarine community, it's a small, tight-knit community. So there's a lot of high stakes environments that give you places to really learn leadership early on in high-pressure situations as a 22-year-old, 23-year-old walking on a submarine and suggesting that you have a division that's quote-unquote reporting to you. They've lost more knowledge than you'll ever have. So that line and understanding of how to lead others is just ingrained to you from day one. What were some of those big leadership lessons? You quickly learn that leadership's not a title when you're a young ensign on a submarine commanding a head of a division of enlisted folks that have just a tremendous amount of knowledge more than you will ever have. You have to earn their respect and to earn respect is hard work. And I think on a submarine to earn your qualifications, it's a tough environment. And it's through just doing that work every day that your ultimate ability to lead others comes from that. And so you learn quickly. It's not what rank you are. It's what you're bringing to others around. At that early age, how did you think about what it was you were bringing to the others? It's a really good question because in the military, it's a lot of specific knowledge around what you're leading. In our case, it was a nuclear reactor and an engine room and driving a ship. And so when you walk on, you don't have a lot of knowledge at all and you don't feel very well equipped. It's just start eating, start going in and learning very methodically, academically, and then in a practicum and going situation by situation. And over time, you start to gain confidence. The military is a unique training ground because you become unconsciously competent, more so than any experience I've had to date. Through a tremendous amount of preparation, you can start acting without thinking. And those are the type of environments that we were living in every day. So P&G, for a long time, had this great brand training program. I'd love to hear what you learned there and how you think about applying it today. I joke often and say, I just went from one uniform into a next proctor. They put on khakis and a blue shirt versus a military uniform. But it was such a formative experience for me coming out of the service where you can't rely upon all the training that I had and go into a world that's just centered on something so different at the time on the consumer. And there's so much I took away from Proctor is just one big training ground. There's very few companies that have had just amazing success over a hundred years of building great brands. And it was just such an opportunity to learn from so many great people, great brands, all centered around a common belief that the consumer's at the center of everything. The big takeaways for me of my Proctor six and a half years was just to always put the consumer first. They also taught of communication skills. Everything at Proctor is a one-pager. I still try to do that to this day, of just being able to concisely share your thoughts and rationale for why you have your beliefs. The people you get to work with, it sounds trite, but I think as we go through our careers and Mike and I will share our journey, a big part of starting eGateway was this desire to be around people we wanted to build something with. I would say it's more wisdom with age, but you don't respect it probably early on, but it is Proctor is just having the opportunity to be around such quality human beings was something that I still take with me today. 
As you're trying to drive profitability of a brand, really curious how much of that is some form of science and how much of it is some form of art. It's a combination of two. I mean, Proctor's really good on the machine of efficiencies of driving out costs. Out of, you have just an incredible access to scaling operations, which is something also as a gift to be exposed to early in your career of just doing things on a big amount of scale. But really the art comes in just having an appreciation for talking and engaging with consumers and really building a relationship. I share that I spent most of my career on the baby care brands and that's a unique dynamic. It's Proctor's biggest brand. I jokingly say, Ted, there's probably a handful of brands that translate every language in the world, call it McDonald's and Budweiser and Coca-Cola and Pampers is one of them. So just to get a grasp to do that at such level across so many cultures and ethnicities, it's just remarkable that you have such a tight-knit understanding of what moms care about. And to see that across such massive scales of country and language barriers was quite remarkable. So to your question, it really is an art and a science. You're only as good of what you were yesterday. You have to build that relationship with every new mom on a day-to-day basis and you can't rest on your laurels. When you're coming in to work with a brand that's been around for as long as Pampers, how do you think about driving incremental value over what was already there at Proctor for so many years? Incremental is a word used often at Proctor, whether it's measuring your media, what incrementality am I driving versus just talking to moms that are already buying Pampers. When I think incremental, I think it goes back to what I just mentioned. There's new moms coming into the category every day. And you have to earn their trust. I just was blessed to have worked on such an unbelievable brand that carries such trust with moms. And to earn that trust has to be one each and every moment that they're putting a product on their most valuable thing that they've ever had, their new baby. I view it as incremental as just simply waking up every day, putting your boots on and saying, I have to do the work today because yesterday really didn't matter. So when you move from the big conglomerate to the faster paced digital ad tech business, what did you learn from being in that environment that was different from what you had seen at Proctor? I think the biggest thing was I was wired for a little faster environment. I think Proctor was wonderful. On my last assignment there, I was working on a North American brand where we got to restage it completely. I actually, I think my biggest fame at Proctor was I put my daughter on pack. So she was on every size two loves diaper in America. She loves that, that we walked into Walmart and saw her on the wall. It was so fun. I think what I realized is I had an entrepreneurial appetite that I really didn't exercise much in the Navy and in my first chapter at Proctor. And I exercised in my last assignment and just as we were taking the brand digital, got to see the environment of tech out in Silicon Valley and that was working so closely with all of our brands, just how everything was changing, the speed of movement and the opportunity for growth, which attracted me. So I think that was the first inkling that I would really desire to be in a faster growth environment. And it proved to be true. Jumping into my next chapter, I couldn't have written it up. It was just such a fun hyper-growth experience in the eight years that I was blessed to be part of it. We took the company public. We changed our name from coupons.com to Quotient Technology. And we just kept on reinventing ourselves every six months. And it just gave me such an appreciation 
for speed and changing environments and just how fast you had to respond in the world of tech and digital. One last question, and then we'll turn it over to Mike's perspective, which is, how did you end up deciding to leave joining up with Mike and others in forming a gateway? The opportunity presented itself actually during COVID. You could call us COVID babies because that's when we decided to come together and build a firm. Really, it all came together somewhat providentially. Never having worked together, we formed a unique team, blending a wide range of both operator experience and investment experience. While all of our team brought super diverse expertise, it just was all in different arenas. We weren't your traditional emerging manager profile at all, meaning we didn't specifically have a track record of running past funds or the return profiles that accompany them. We did, though, however, share a common vision to build a firm and not simply a fund. We often say that in the words growth capital, too much emphasis has been put on capital. It's become somewhat of a commodity. Our interest, on the other hand, was to focus on the word growth. We thought there was a lack of operator expertise and true knowledge around growth. And our desire was to help these companies in an impactful way reach their revenue goals. So Mike and I, along with three other partners in early 21, formed eGateway Capital. And with Mike and I both being from Cincinnati, we shared a strong desire to raise the profile of our region. We were both united from the beginning in the belief that capital will play the most important role in seizing its future growth opportunities. Well, Mike, I'm guessing that in that blend of operating and investing that Chad's the operator. So why don't you bring me back in your path on the investing side? Sure, Ted. Yeah, so I used to wear a uniform too, not in the military service, but eGateway is populated with a lot of former athletes, as well as seasoned folks from the private equity space. My background after playing basketball at a small division two school in Florida was I always wanted to be an investor, but I wanted to live in Cincinnati. And there weren't many investment firms in Cincinnati in the early 2000s. We talked about brands earlier. I turned to a big brand at the time, Merrill Lynch, thinking it was an investment job and quickly found out it was the ultimate entrepreneurial experience. But I learned a lot about investing there. I learned a lot about how to build a business and build a firm and what a good partnership is and what a not so good partnership is. So I learned a lot that's helped shape what we're trying to build here at eGateway through that process. Along the way, 0809 happened. I really had a chance to pick my head up, look around and see what clients, the private client world deserved, what they were asking for, listening to the customer. And they were asking for things that I couldn't provide at Merrill Lynch. So I ended up leaving to go to the fiduciary model, spent time at an independent firm and then launched a multifamily office platform with some partners. And we did a lot of very unique investing into funds and direct investments. And so I, like you, have seen a lot of investment firms over time, the good, the bad, the other. So I think I'm trying to learn from my past and from all the people that I've met to build a special type of firm, as Chad mentioned. And a lot of those elements come into being thesis-driven as opposed to a generalist firm, staying focused, being the right size for the team in terms of the size of the fund. And being very much focused on, to Chad's point, a true partner that's on the field in the arena with our portfolio companies helping them grow. We just believe it's more fun and impactful that way. So anyway, hopefully that brings to life my investment background, but also have spent time building firms as well. 
Mike, you said two things at the onset. I want to double click in a little bit. One is that you knew you wanted to be involved in investing. Where did that passion come from? I can't think of a job that would be more fun and really aligned with how I'm wired. As a naturally curious person, I get to spend time with and learn from some very interesting and incredible entrepreneurs and leaders, as well as go deep on themes and trends that are shaping the future of the economy to identify patterns. It's also fun to be different and take a stand, which is a natural part of being a successful investor. I also have a passion to serve and partner with others, and we get to do that every day with our companies. Lastly, I'm not sure if it's the athlete or the middle child of me, but I do love to compete, and investing to me is the ultimate form of competition. As much as I do have a passion for investing, I'm even more passionate about building an investment business and all that comes with starting, growing, and nurturing a culture and a firm here at eGateway. Mike, the other one is you said you wanted to be in Cincinnati. Now, that isn't always something that pops the top of people's heads in the investment world. So where'd that come about? I'm a middle child from a large middle-class Catholic family in Cincinnati that was raised in the Jesuit education system where the motto was meant for others. And there's just this community component, the Midwest values, however you want to say it, that as I always take the long view, this is where I wanted to raise my kids and build a career. And so it's just a special place. And I think all the people that we engage with, a lot of our investors today are from the region, but those that aren't, I think they're getting appreciation for all that we have to offer here in the greater Cincinnati area. It's very important to us. And I think through our efforts, we're trying to raise the profile of what's going on here in this corridor of commerce. How did you guys come together? We've been friends for a long time. Cincinnati is often called the smallest, biggest town. We both came from big families, all by different sides of the river. Mike from Cincinnati, I'm from Kentucky. It's funny, if you knew us, we're both wired quite differently. But over the years, it became evident as our relationship grew that we shared a lot of similar values and beliefs, specifically things like gratitude, service, thinking big, always with a purpose to positively impact those around us. Our firm intentionally signs off all of our correspondence and emails to this day with the words, with gratitude. And we do this, Ted, because it captures our commitment to serve, and it's really authentically who we are. So you both mentioned this idea of forming a firm and not a fund. What does that mean to you? I'll take a stab at that. That was one of the big onsets is we had an idea around a platform to build something to bring back these elements that we thought were missing in a lot of private capital and, and harkens back to its roots, which was to be a partner to our companies and to all of our stakeholders and be beyond the check. We also thought we'd form a firm of lasting significance around bringing a combination of operator-led with investors because we thought there's just been some expertise that's been missing in a lot of firms if they've scaled. And I think we have purposely, Ted, built a product outside the bell curve intentionally. And we've done it through positive diversification around our portfolio and our thesis that we're investing in. And we believe it has a lot of tailwinds for the next couple decades with regards to our thesis. So to encapsulate another commonality is we often talk to be of service. Mike mentioned the Jesuit background. I was the youngest of a big family as well. But to be of service is something we put front and center to our entire stakeholder community. It's the how we do things. And I think when we think of a firm and not just a fund, it all starts with the same thing first on our scorecard when we look at companies to invest in. That is with people, our team. And so we had brought together a group 
with diverse backgrounds and experience to serve this higher order calling of how can we serve our stakeholder community in a unique way, our companies in an impactful way post-investment with their growth, but also our community of investors. Where do we meet them where they're at? We've built a really strategic community, LPs that have a ton of expertise in and around the areas that we're investing. So think CPG and retail and supply chain executives. And then last but not least, when we think of firm and not a fund is to reiterate some of the stuff around our location, around the Midwest. We think the Midwest is undercapitalized. We believe in that. We think there's an arbitrage opportunity as a lot of U.S. industry sits here with not a lot of the capital. And we think most importantly, our region adds value to our companies as a nexus of industry that happens to overlay with what we're investing behind. So you have Procter & Gamble, the world's largest consumer products good company here. You have Kroger, one of the countries and probably soon to be largest standalone grocer. If the Albertsons merger were to go through... And then you have maybe a third leg, which is a center of supply chain. So it is a geographic superiority of reaching a vast majority of the U.S. population within two days. So you've always had our history rooted from the Ohio River and the movement of goods. And it's no different today. I happen to have been on our airport board. Many may not know that our airport sits in the northern Kentucky side of the river. So you fly into northern Kentucky and it serves the Cincinnati region. But our airport, CPG, I've been on their board for the last decade, and it's been such an honor to watch our transformation into one of the country's fastest growing cargo airports with the Amazon mega hub for all their air operations, putting their home there over four years ago, and then us being the North American hub for DHL, their second largest operation in the world. Then 100 miles south, Ted, you have UPS's air operations in Louisville. So what we like to say is within 100 miles of Cincinnati region, you have three of the top four physical assets around the country, around the movement of goods. So when we think of firm and not a fund, there's some adjacent stories of why we get up every morning with a level of commitment that we do believe is higher order, why this team's come together to serve. We do believe there's a communal aspect to what we're doing, and we're excited about it. So Mike, if you bring what Chad said together to build a firm that can partner with companies serving this community and their certain sectors, CPG, supply chain. How do you turn that into an investment strategy? Yeah, Ted, our investment strategy centers around our belief that the economy looks much more digital in the decades to come. We often say here at the firm that the opportunity is big, it's early, and it's urgent. To be clear, we're more focused on the B2B components of this digital transformation and the growth stage technologies that are enabling this future of commerce. We define commerce across four distinct investment pillars. The first is how things are made. The second is how things are marketed. The third is how things are sold. And the fourth, ultimately, how things are distributed. When we think of how things are made, we think the technologies driving advanced manufacturing or the sourcing and procurement processes inside of large companies. When we think marketed, we think how new mediums like video commerce platforms are driving consumer engagement and how data is driving measurable outcomes for brands and retailers. When we think sold, we think social commerce, B2B marketplaces, fintech, brand and price protection online, and several more. And when we think distributed, we think first, middle, and last mile supply chain and logistics technologies. What's the target company that you're looking for? We really, for all the reasons we've talked about, we want to engage differently. We want to be operator-led and bring this expertise That's all let us down, Ted, 
to go beyond venture. We call it growth capital. So what's that mean? Growth capital to us is finding a company that has a validated product, that has an established commercial market fit, that's going upstream of, call it, north of 10 million in reoccurring revenue, and has demonstrated an enormous TAM around solving a problem of our thesis is the future of commerce, technology that's enabling that future of commerce. So we think everything from early supply chain, how things are sourced and produced. We think how things are marketed, where I've spent most of my career, how things are sold and transacted. So much is happening with omni-channel commerce. And we're very interested in all the pixels and axes that have to be true to make that world effective and efficient. And then last, our pillar, we how things are distributed and delivered. So I've just described to you this value chain of commerce. It's pretty linear, pretty intuitive. Let's turn to the investment process. Why don't you take me through it? Any great investment process starts with a great sourcing engine. We're excited about both the quantity and the quality of our deal flow. As it relates to our diligence process, of course, it includes all the standard legal, technical, commercial, and general deal diligence items. But the core of our diligence process starts and ends with, can we be the most impactful investment partner to the company? We go deep on getting to know the management teams and their leadership styles along with the company cultures. We always look for talent magnets in our companies. Ensuring alignment on the cap table and good governance at the board level is also very important, along with understanding the competitive landscape and talking to a lot of customers and potential customers about the companies. Ultimately, the purpose of our diligence process is to determine if we truly have an edge that can deliver the outcomes that our investors are expecting. We spend a lot of time as a research-driven firm going down on each of those pillars into the sector, into the subsector, identifying when companies are emerging at the stage we are best a fit to align ourselves with them. In our first three years, most of them have all been sourced from companies we built relationships with over a year in certain circumstances. And our perfect scenario is doing exactly that. We're a relationship-led. We try every day not to be transactional. We think about what we're calling this e-gateway edge. Pre-investment, we try to get to the 10-yard line as much faster than generalists can. So when we engage with the company, even on that first engagement, often they can recognize that we're bringing a level of expertise that's just a little unique to being a thesis-driven firm. So that's always a positive, and we build relationships from then on. And our ask is simply to be their first call. So and the next time that they're raising, they think of us to play a strategic capital role on their cap table. We just made our ninth investment over the past two plus years, and we feel really good about how that process has occurred of coming to us. Once you're finding companies that fit into your thesis, you see how you might be able to add value in scaling. It's a competitive world, and I'm curious how you go about winning the deals you want to be in. I think the short answer is doing the work. I think the biggest differentiation is doing what you say you're going to do. I think everybody mentions they'll add value post-investment. And I think humans are pretty predictable and a certain percentage of them not doing that work. (laughs) And so I think the biggest thing eGateway is trying to live up to our commitment. And we take this super seriously. So where that manifests itself is often doing work prior to making the investment. So it's not going and taking our word for it, but actually seeing those motions and that muscle take place. We bring them in. We have great corporate relationships. We're building across the industries. We mentioned CPG and retail and supply chain. We demonstrate some of that value early on. I think we've been very successful finding human capital around what they need as well. And as you know, 
being in seat as an operator, there's nothing you value more than finding great people to help you reach your objectives. We just try to go about it methodically. We're not going to be your everyday call, just a deep, trusted relationship that there's expertise and competence around what I need and what I need now. And so what we spend a lot of time focused on is impactful things that we can do that facilitate their growth. We take this as our metric of success every day. And the best references are companies and who's in seat. And we feel every day there's always more work to do, but we're doing what we set out to do. The only build I have to that, Ted, is that one of our core principles at the firm is having an abundant mentality. And we try to find that in everybody that we partner with. And so we have 15-ish slots in this fund and we're seeing so many companies. So we're not scared of missing out on anything. And we have to really find alignment as well as check all the boxes from a quantitative perspective. How do you engage with companies once they're in your portfolio? Post-investment, we really focus on organic growth of helping at the go-to-market side, whether that be walking them in to bigger customers. Often we do that motion prior to investing. We also take our network of human capital around the go-to-market. We've had great success putting chief revenue officers and VP of sales and revenue ops experts into our companies to help with the motions that we think are really important at that growth stage of scaling. And then last is M&A. One of our partners is a longtime investment banker in this space, and we have a boutique M&A shop that's under the eGateway banner. And if we can help with non-organic growth, we're really excited to do so. That's manifested itself well with one of our portfolio companies recently where we were able to identify their first acquisition and run the process and close on really a non-organic growth opportunity for them. So these are the ways that we think every day. How can we serve them? How can we be differentiated with our backgrounds and expertise that we're bringing to the market? And that's how it's manifesting itself today. You mentioned 15 slots for portfolio companies. How do you think about the construction of your portfolios in each vintage? There's inherent diversification as we talk about our pillars. These businesses are all very different and play differently in different cycles. We love the diversification that's inherent in our strategy. We're middle of the fairway for us would be if we're playing the alphabet game, a B or a C round, and that'll be the core of our portfolio. And we could go a little earlier or a little later. That's a A extension round all the way up to a D round. But the core of the portfolio is going to be that B or C round company. And we're reserving naturally about 20% for follow-ons in the portfolio. So we monitor that very closely and talk about it a lot because every pillar is not going to be equally represented, but they will all be represented in the portfolio. One build to that is our underwriting process playing at this growth stage. It is distinctly different from our view of venture. And a lot of that comes around to the risk-adjusted returns and the profile, looking for three to five X return profile in that similar time period. So investing in technology that's changing commerce is most of our companies are solving big problems with big TAMs. Generally, finding their plan to deliver greater than a 5X is not always super challenging. We spend a lot of time, though, on the downside protection. That comes in a lot of forms. We've seen structure return in the marketplace in the form of liquidation preferences. We're excited about that. That gives you more beyond portfolio construction of how we're looking at that return profile as well. I'd love to have you take me through an example soup to nuts and maybe start with the four pillars 
and how each of the four pillars exemplified what you were looking for in this company. I'll take you through a company called Overhaul. So Overhaul sits on our how things are distributed and delivered pillar. So if you start with sourcing, Ted, we identified supply chain visibility early on as a space that we really wanted to go deep on and find an opportunity. Through those efforts at the time, there's a couple big players that have raised a lot of money, evaluations that we wouldn't have been comfortable at, but we kept at it. One of the co-investors in a fund one company gave us a call and said, hey, I got this interesting company. It's in Austin, Texas. They have an operation in Dublin, really incredible people, leaders. And so when we hear that, we're naturally attracted to it and said, okay, we'd love to take a call. We spent about 10 months getting to know the overhaul team. One of our partners, Chad's classmate from the Naval Academy, Josh Awad, he spent time going to the Dublin office meeting the team. Some of us went down to Austin to meet the team and just built this relationship. They weren't raising capital, but we really liked what we heard. And they're doing something of a moat that we always look for in our investments where it's a there's this supply chain visibility dashboard and platform that others have built. But Overhaul has this managed service layer on top of their technology that's a control tower that's really helping their customers. So anyway, we're learning all these things. And they said, hey, we may be in the market to raise some capital to make an acquisition. When we do that, we'll give you a call. And we got this call from Barry, the CEO of Overhaul, late last year. And then we went through our process, dug in, did our work, and actually brought them in to a big corporate partner, Innovation Day, we hosted. And so Overhaul saw the value we could bring. They made space for us on this race because there weren't many people invited to the party. So that's sourcing to the making the investment, and we're very involved with helping them grow through customer introductions. Quick overview on their business, Ted. It's really interesting. Their customers are, think, high-value goods. So Apple, Dell, Microsoft, Pfizer, Bristol-Myers, some cold storage, where they're tracking and monitoring the environment of this high-value cargo from beginning point to end point. And they have, as I mentioned, this control tower, tracking it so that the routes are optimized to minimize transport costs. But even more importantly, should something happen, and there's a lot of stuff getting stolen all the time, especially high-value goods, where they can actually drive the insight to action, where they're plugged into law enforcement agencies around the world to recover this stuff. So again, that's overhaul. It's our largest position in the fund. We don't have any favorite children. They're a special company doing special things for a lot of big brands. And a business like that, you mentioned based in Austin. How do you think about where Cincinnati fits into your investable universe? I'm glad you asked that, Ted. It's a good clarification. We're not geographically bound on any of our investments, so nobody should take that away. We're our excitement about building a firm that happens to be headquartered here. Our thesis of investing around the future of commerce happens to align well with the historical and natural strengths of the region. And being undercapitalized both as a region and then a smaller city within that region, we're excited where eGateway can play a positive role progressing our future forward over the next two decades. We think this is a great attractive place to both scale. I had that experience in my former company. We built Cincinnati as a Mountain View-based company into our largest global office. It's a great place to scale a company. And so we're excited about that. And that brings us to your question. 
we really think we're intersecting with growth stage companies. They're all at this S-curve of scaling up. And usually that's the same playbook of going up the food chain with bigger customers, but also scaling their operations and scaling people. And we love to bring the story of the region to these companies where and when it makes sense. It's not a requirement, of course, but we have great alignment working with them every day to help them with everything they're trying to achieve and just build awareness around the middle of the country being a great place to scale. And I think it's way beyond cost benefits of not being on the coast. It's really more around being closer to your customer. So much of US industry sits right here in the middle of the country. And when you're a startup moving to growth stage on the coast, sometimes serving those customers as effectively as you need to, as you're getting on bigger and bigger enterprise accounts just becomes more difficult. So I think that's the story we're sharing over time. We think there's a great opportunity to scale, and it's already happening with several of our portfolio companies here in the region. And where we can facilitate it, we view it as a win for them, first and foremost, and a win for Northern Kentucky and greater Cincinnati. Who is the team around you guys? Our seasoned veteran on the squad is a gentleman by the name of Mike Dutton. Mike has lived and worked in the private equity world for over 30 years was early on at the Carlisle Group and then moved out west, as he says, to do his service as the co-head of private capital at, at CalPERS. So he has seated and advised a lot of emerging managers like us. So not to mention his network and wisdom around seeing investments and making decisions, but just what it takes to build a firm, not just raise a fund. And so we're very blessed to have Mike. He lived in Covington, Kentucky for two and a half years as we launched. And so we're very grateful to he and his wife for doing that. They live out in California. We mentioned Josh Awad. Josh is a Naval Academy classmate of Chad's. They go way back in that respect. He went to Harvard Business School and then was at Bain Consulting in tech and private equity and then launched a portfolio of direct-to-consumer pet brands. So he has seen a lot of the picks and shovels technologies we're investing in, has done a lot of other investing along the way. So tremendous asset to the team. Kevin Gusweiler is a Cincinnati native. I have known Kevin for a long time. He comes with a little more of an investment background as well. He was at Fifth Third Bank in Cincinnati, doing a lot of corp dev and fintech investing. So he has a lot of network around the fintech world, which falls in our thesis there. And then was at Fort Washington Capital Partners, which is inside of Western and Southern before he helped us launch eGateway. And last but certainly not least is Maddie McIntyre. Maddie is from San Diego, played softball for Ohio State, then worked at Ohio State Fundraising for many years, set up a leadership institute, and then was at a family office before joining us about a year ago, and just recently moved to Cincinnati. So we're adding to the population here in Cincinnati through our efforts of building a firm too. What are you most excited about? That's really simple. Nothing fires us up more than thinking about all the technology that is driving the transformation in our economy. We really do get excited about all the companies in our portfolio focused on solving big problems across the investment pillars that we've talked about, starting with how things are made. Take a company like 80 Acres. It's a vertical farm that is doing something that has never been done in the history of mankind, producing food indoors at scale and actually making money, changing an industry of farming and food production that has been really the same for a millennia. Then we go to our second pillar, how things are marketed. Companies like Firework, bringing shoppable, 
swipeable, shareable video directly to brands, all outside the walled gardens of social media platforms, allowing brands to again have a direct relationship with the consumer and ultimately build a first-party data source. Or companies like VidMob, an AI-driven company in our portfolio who is creating an entirely new space in performance marketing, a space called Creative Intelligence, helping brand marketers drive better outcomes with their video creative than ever before. We're also excited about our third pillar, how things are sold and transacted. Companies like Samcart, the Shopify for the creator economy, an AI-driven platform that helps creators monetize their following through online courses, podcast, coaching, and tons of other digital products. Or companies in the social commerce space. I want to announce, but I just can't yet, but our next portfolio company actually plays directly in this space. We couldn't be more excited about the opportunities to bring a social media experience and a commerce experience more seamlessly together. And Ted, last but definitely not least, all the technology around supply chain. Companies like Flowspace, what we call the Airbnb of warehousing and fulfillment, helping brands reach the consumer more efficiently and effectively, providing access to warehouses throughout the country with a turnkey technology. Or Cargomatic a digital freight marketplace connecting truckers to credential demand from nine of the top 10 retailers, getting things through ports to the first point of distribution. And Overhaul, referenced by Mike earlier, is another exciting company playing in a space that only gets more important each day, and that's supply chain security and visibility. And last, we're super excited about reverse logistics, the world of return merchandise, especially relevant right now after the holiday season an $820 billion problem, actually, and that it's getting bigger every year. Knock, our most recent investment, is focused on solving this problem for consumer electronics and durable goods. What other themes are you seeing around your investment thesis? There's two themes that we're thinking a lot about. We believe that every company in the world has put a new lens on their supply chain, visibility, but also resiliency. And we think we're just in the super early innings of thinking about this because these aren't yearly changes. They're decades long to move their supply chains in an environment that's going to be a little more resilient. I don't know if I'm allowed to say there were blessings that came out of COVID, but I do think that every C-suite is still in the assess the landscape to what changes are really going to be made over the next decade when it comes to maybe nearshoring or looking at the entire algorithm that took their supply chain in one direction and making sure that every variable in that algorithm is one, still true, and two, how important. So that's something we really are interested in. We're spending a lot of time thinking about on both the front end of supply chain, but also the back. The other area that we believe in is this whole pendulum shift between retail and CPG that's occurred over the last 30 years as the power pendulum has swung so dramatically over to retail into the intermediaries of distribution that have now become data powerhouses. This is a relatively new phenomena. I always use the analogy of P&G's size to Walmart in the 1980s versus today. It's quite different. P&G makes up maybe 1% of Walmart's business and Walmart makes up today, I'm using round numbers, maybe 30% of P&G's business. So where do you think the power lies between those worlds? Just to fully bring it home, just how much has changed over the last three decades. CPG's power was really around the consumer and they brought retailers such knowledge 
to how to win the aisle, how to win the category. And now today, with digital playing such a role in purchase data being the source data that matters, retailers have the power. And so it'll be interesting in our view of how this plays out. Either CPGs are going to have to reconcile the fact that their gross margins are going to be cut in half over time, which I doubt they're going to come to that conclusion super easily. But there's going to be a battle around how to get back access to my consumer. Direct to consumer is going to be lumpy. But I can assure you that the next two decades, every executive in both CPG and retail is thinking about this orientation of cost to serve, how expensive and how to serve that ecosystem more effectively. Where do you want to play in that space in your investments? So there's a funch line that goes through some of our investments that plays towards the decentralization of big functions like we've just been talking about. So Firework is an example, a digital video commerce company. So think of them as shoppable, swipeable, shareable video, similar to like a TikTok experience, but unlike TikTok, not in a walled garden. So not in an app where they own all the data, but instead in a very decentralized approach, enabling that technology to brands themselves to put that shoppable, shareable, swipeable video on their own brand websites on brand.com. Now, why does that matter? Well, getting first access to first party data is going to be very important and is very important to every brand. So they have the ability to directly communicate and control their destiny. But to do that, five players control 80% of media spend. We believe that has to revert back to the mean. Brand.coms have to become more effective. And to do that, they're going to have to engage with the consumer in a way that she wants to engage and consume content. And that's not with static sites anymore. So that's with live shoppable. If you look at Asia as an example, we think they're out four to five years in front of the US on how to use video from a concept of engaging the consumer. Live feed as an example is blowing up on that side of the world. Whether that comes in its form over the US, we shall see. But we definitely believe video commerce is one way we see helping brands retrieve some of that back from retailers. What have been some of the biggest challenges in growing an emerging manager? It's a virtual cycle that's hard to break. So love your team, but no track record. (laughs) We constantly suggest that there is a track record, but just not in the traditional sense. And you go around this, but it's something you really just have to embrace. Mike and I and the rest of the partners, this goes back to building a firm over a fund. We're on a journey. We're committed to build something lasting. And we're also committed to enroll folks on that journey whenever you're ready. So a lot of folks aren't ready at the emerging manager spot, and that's okay. I really think it's getting out this story of where are the advantages? I think a lot of time the connotation and the emphasis on emerging managers is negative when data would suggest quite the contrary. Data would suggest that funds one through three outperform. We believe that's intuitive because we also believe very firmly in alignment. And we think there's a lot of alignments in fund ones and twos and threes that may depart in four, fives, and sixes. We also believe thesis, not just because eGateway is taken, and yes, we're biased, but we do believe that we're bringing real differentiation. We believe we built this firm to be outside the bell curve intentionally. 
And a lot of that is through how we're investing with a thesis-generated approach where we can be research-led and fine, but also as an operator-led. I said in the beginning of our discussion in growth capital, we just believe at our core that more emphasis needs to be put on growth than capital. And we're finding that to be true and the receptivity really high with our founders where we're having ability to access. I want to make sure I get a chance to ask you a couple of closing questions. We'll run through each with both of you. So what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Mike, why don't you go ahead? I would say running. I run every day. We have five younger children building the firm. It's my 50 minutes of quiet thinking time. Chet? Fly fishing. I love it. I'd say there's few things I've ever found where I'm more passionate about something. And it's pretty easy. It just unwinds me. I have a hard time not moving at a fast speed. And I really appreciate fly fishing where it requires just enough concentration to push everything out. What's one fact that most people don't know about you? My two front teeth are completely fake. I got them knocked out (laughs) during college. One of the more painful things I've ever been through. But yeah, the kids have fun with that one too. (laughs) Chet? I don't think many people know that I'm the youngest of a family of 10. I haven't been through the military and some great experiences in my life. I still hold true that that was the most formative experience of my life and growing up in that slot of a big family. The military gave me a whole new level of adapt and overcome, but I was first learned at a young age. What's your biggest pet peeve? Being late. I always tell my kids just respecting other people's time is super important. Mine would have to be when someone doesn't do what they say they're going to do. All right, Mike, which two people? have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Wow. I'll start picking a partner in life, whether it's your spouse or business is the most important decision you'll make. And I think I've learned so much from Chad. We're very, very different people. He inspires me in many ways and we bring so many different things to the table. And I would say that about the rest of my partners. As hard as this has been, it's been the most enjoyable, impactful part of my professional life because I'm around people that do inspire me. And so I would start there. And then obviously my father, he raised eight children, he and my mother, and he had his own law firm and he is an entrepreneur. And I've learned so much from him in many ways. Chad? Thanks, Mike. The feeling is mutual. I've never been more inspired than over the past three years launching eGateway. I feel very grateful for being on this journey with you and the entire team and appreciate the push to better myself each day. The other person that comes to mind is a friend who gave me an opportunity to be successful at both P&G and Quotient. Despite being a West Point graduate, he's a dear friend to this day, and I'm grateful for him believing in me. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Ownership. Somewhat attached to that is launching a firm before you have five kids. (laughs) When to take the risk. Mike, Chad, thanks so much for sharing your journey with us. Likewise. Thanks, Ted. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at to apply for one of the slots. 